Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. All right, today we're talking about a good death. Yes, it's a nice and depressing topic, but of course, it's a very important topic because it's what's on almost every human being's mind 24 by 7 in one way or not. The fact is that we're all going to die and we all have to face that. And so many people uh, don't do a very good job facing death. They're very afraid of it. They spend their whole life thinking about it. And even though it's only the last moment of your life, they make it the most important moment of their life. You know, if the science of death remains basically a riddle, you know, we're not exactly sure why the human body decides to die, but the psychology of it has been our greatest mystery. You know, others die, not us, or at least that's what most of us think. We think we're all in invincible. You know, the difficulty to conceive of our own death is perhaps some kind of survival mechanism to prevent it from actually happening. And rather than just being a biological impulse, our denial of death seems to be a psychological condition that is rooted in, yes, Freudian theory. Yes, you know, Americans repress the idea of death. Our fear of it is so great that it lies beneath the deep of our subconscious. And the word itself is a major turnoff, which, you know, many people uh, fictionalize death through violent uh, acts or quickly discover uh, that, that, you know, entertainment is a big part of centering around death and the fear of death. You know, it's the keeping death at bay. You know, it's this over-the-top stylized version serving as a safe substitute for the actual real thing. And so we have, in short, a, a neurosis, a psychosis when it comes to death. With most of us displaying the classic signs of a disorder like anxiety, depression, hypochondria, whenever we have to confront the subject in real life. And besides the complex psychological issues, there are practical ones that further complicate things. We are woefully misinformed about what is likely to kill us, overestimating the dramatic, like airplane crashes, acts of terrorism, you know, underestimating the routine chronic diseases, car accidents, falling down the stairs. You know, uh, the big three are out there that kill us, and that's heart disease, cancer, and stroke. That's it. You know, we're incredibly knowledgeable about the most trivial matters, which, uh, you know, what celebrity is dating or, or what movie star is doing this or that or what politician is running for office when the newest and the latest technological gadgets coming out or who is leading, you know, in baseball or football. You know, we have no little or no idea about when or how we'll probably die. So the death is a scientific psychological puzzle that's understandable. But it's our own failures in the area of dying that have proved most worrisome. We don't die well. You know, even Bill Moyers observed that back in uh, two, uh, 2000. You know, our exclusive focus on our life has made death not only uh, one of our priorities, 
but something for which we're all to blame. And doctors lack training in the area of dying and their commitment to preserve life at any cost. So the institutional nature of both modern medicine and funeral industry, religious leaders' own discomfort is the end of life and families' reluctance to let their loved ones go is just a few reasons why death is so problematic in this country and in this world. More than any single factor, it is death and dying that run counter to virtually all of our defining values. Youth, beauty, progress, achievement, winning, optimism, independence, our inherent antipathy of death become much more pronounced in early decades of the 20th century where modernism reached all avenues of life. And all of a sudden, you know, we had modern medicine, we had antibiotics, we had vaccines, we had surgeries, transplants, machines that allow us to skirt death and delay it. And so some people think that science and doctors are going to keep us alive. Well, their job is to hedge our bets, but that does not prevent us from dying. You know, one way to understand death and dying is to look more closely at physical death, psychological death, and social death. There's three categories, and it's really important to understand it. Physiological death occurs when the vital organs don't function. So the digestive, the respiratory systems begin to shut down during a gradual process of dying. A dying person no longer wants to eat. You know, because digestion slows down, digestive tract loses moisture and chewing, swallowing, elimination become really painful processes. Circulation slows and, uh, you know, the pooling of blood may be noticeable on the underside of the body appearing much like bruising. Breathing becomes more sporadic and shallow and it may take a rattling sound as air travels through the mucus-filled passageways. So the person often sleeps more and more and may talk less, although they continue to hear. And the kinds of symptoms noted prior to death in patients under hospice care, which is a care focused on final days of death or finer hours of death, is, is, is about this. When a person no longer has brain activity, they are clinically dead. But here's the weird thing. Physiological death may take 72 or fewer hours. 72. I know a whole lot of places where people buy, bury people within 24 hours or have them taken to be cremated. But 72 hours or fewer is physiological death. Also, social death. It begins a whole lot earlier than psychological death because it occurs when others begin to withdraw from someone who is terminally ill or has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. So those diagnosed with conditions like AIDS or cancer may find that friends, family members, and even healthcare professionals begin to say less and visit less frequently because they figure you're already dying. They've already started the grieving process while you're still alive. You know, doctors may spend less time with patients after their prognosis you know, when they have no solutions to relieve their suffering, they withdraw to protect themselves against feeling inadequate or having to face the reality of death. Also, health professionals trained to heal may also feel really inadequate and un uncomfortable facing the decline in death. So a patient who is dying may be referred to as circling the drain, meaning they are approaching death. And so people in nursing homes may live as socially dead for years with no one visiting or calling. 
And social support is important for quality of life. And for those who experience social death, they're deprived from the benefits that, that come from a loving interaction with other people. And it's really sad that we socially do this to people. There's also psychic death. It occurs when the dying person begins to accept death and to uh, withdraw from other people and regress into themselves. And this can take place long before physiological death or even social death of others still supporting and visiting that dying person and can even bring a physiological death closer. So people have some control over the timing of their death and can hold on until an important occasion and then they die quickly after having lost someone important to them and they can give up their own will to live. And that is your soul, your will, your primary driver. You know, the word grief has come to understand solely as a reaction to death. But that narrow understanding fails to encompass the range of human experiences that create and trigger grief. And so there's four types of roles of affiliation. A person growing through divorce who feels the loss, no longer a, a spouse, a brand, brain cancer survivor who's lost a sense of femininity after a double mastectomy, an empty nester who moans the loss of the, you know their parenthood, you know, people who lose their job. There's all kinds of ways of grieving, but people grieve when they die. And here's the most important part about grieving to understand. When a person dies, we're concerned about their legacy. We want to celebrate a person's life. The last thing that any of us wants to be remembered for is our death. We want to be remembered. That's why we wake up in the morning. We spend all our energy in our relationships because we want to be remembered for how we live, not how we die. That is what your job is. When you're grieving, your job is to celebrate their life and carry their legacy forward. And if you really want to do something spectacular, actually do something for yourself that they wish you would have done for yourself in your life. That means do something you would not do for yourself that they would wish you would have done for yourself. If you do that, what happens is we start to begin to understand that, hey, wow, I can make big changes in my life. That can be my legacy with that person. And guess what? They live through me because I never would have done these things without that person in my life wanting this for me and me celebrating their life by what I'm doing for them. People are afraid of death, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, they, 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 they don't want to cause grief to loved ones. They feel important ambitions and projects are going to come to an end. You know, you have to remember that the day you die, the next day, they're going to put an ad out for your job. You know, we're not irreplaceable. And we need to remember that because a lot of people will make their identity their work. And that's not where life is. Yes, you do a job. Yes, you need to make money. Yes, you need to support your family, but it doesn't have to become who you are. It needs to be there in support of the life that you're building. People forget that. You know, they also fear that the process of dying will be painful. They, they fear that they'll no longer be able to have any experiences. They'll no longer be able to care for other people. You know, they fear what will happen 
if there's a life after death, you know, all the sins that they've done, are they going to go to hell? You never know. But, you know, what might happen if their body after they die? Are they going to, you know, cremate me? And am I going to feel it? You know, there's all those kinds of fears. You know, if you pinpoint exactly what it is that scared you, you'll probably be able to work through the fear and find a solution. You know, fear of, of, of causing grief to other people, it's inevitable. We have pretty much all experienced over the course of our lives. Anyone who feels love will eventually feel grief. But people who are far more resilient than we tend to give them credit for that. Yes, losing will cause pain, but eventually everybody moves on. They'll be able to focus on their wonderful experience that they had with you and the wonderful lessons that they learned from you. That is great, but they also will move on with their life. If you live a life of insignificance where you're not focused on relationships, there's a good chance your legacy will pass very quickly and other people will adapt to your dying very quickly and move on. What you want is you want to have a life of significance that is contributed well into other people's lives, that is contributed through people's suffering and identified with people's pain. That is our job on this planet. You know, and when we forget that, we just tend to cope with life rather than live it. You know, we really want to have a good contingency plan and sort out the necessary things that that will allay our fears when we die. If you're worried about the people that are going to be left behind you, you do want to take care of them and you want to focus on that now. If you're a depressed procrastinator, which procrastination is depression, then you're probably not going to do that because, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to die. I don't want to have to deal with that because I'll probably die if I put that together. Well, so what if you do? But the bottom line is you owe that to your spouse, to your relatives, to your family to sort these details out so they they don't have to deal with it for you. You also want to give instructions after you die what you would like to happen. It doesn't mean that's what's going to happen, but it doesn't hurt to give people an idea of what you want. You know, uh, uh, if, if we're thinking about the fear of death and worrying that it's going to hurt, that's another concern that we have to deal with. And the truth is life hurts. It's full of pain. Pain is a reminder you're still alive. And so, you know, it seems vastly important that people are less afraid of death in the manner in which they may die. You cannot control always how you die. You have to understand that that is in God's hands. That's in life's hands. That's not in your hands unless you commit suicide, which we'll talk about that later. But, you know, people who... Uh, uh, you know, talk about also keeping me alive, you know, keeping you alive may mean you're going to be in pain for a long time. So keeping you alive may not be in the cards. Maybe people should unplug. Maybe people should let people pass. That is something that you want to have arranged, prearranged before you die so that you're not just laying there in a vegetative state for years and years and years because legally they can't unplug you, yet you are not alive. You are not the person you once were, and you can never be that. So arranging for something to happen where you actually can just slip away is not a bad idea because you don't want to just linger there forever. You know, it, it, some people can live in a vegetative state for, for you know, several years. And that can drag things out and leave people in a very uncomfortable position having to 
deal with you still being alive, but not functional. The other thing is, if you want to be smart, you want to live every day like it's the last day of your life. You know, you want to experience things and make memories. Memories are important. The meaning of life is the ability to create memories with others, not by yourself, with others, so others can share in the joy of those memories. That is the significance of your life. That is important. The other thing is, before you die, make a list of things you really, really, really want to accomplish in this life, things you want to experience in this life, and then make an exerted effort to try to make it happen. A lot of people forget to do that. They're procrastinators because they're afraid of death. They don't face it. They don't go out there and make a life worth living. They make a life to prevent death, and that is not a way to live. We want to live our life to the end and live it joyfully. But if you really want to have a good life, you want to have relationships. What's really interesting is if you want to be a very attractive person in this life and you want lots of people to celebrate your life, here's one of the main things that you need to remember that goes against all human instinct. And that is the actual attempt to be grateful to every person in your life for anything that they bring to your life. If you do that, they will remember you because there are so few people in this life that are grateful. So few of us that take the time to say thank you. Most all of us are narcissistic pigs who are very selfish, very much about our own gratification and not about other people. And when you start to recognize that your life is better with other people, you also have to recognize you need to be grateful for other people and recognize how rare it is for anyone to hear nice things from anyone on this planet. If you're one of those people that actually takes a moment in your life to be grateful for others, you will get the most out of your life. You know, when it comes to the fear of afterlife or the lack of one, it really comes down to what you believe spiritually. So here's the deal. Does your soul die when your body dies? Probably not. And so in that, where in the hell does it go? Well, we don't know that, but Christianity says, hopefully we all go to heaven. You know, hopefully we all go off into that place where things are better, things are better suited for our soul, you know, but we don't know what happens to that soul. It journeys, it goes somewhere, it does something, but we don't know what that is. And the truth is, there's some answers you will never get. And that's probably one of them. Yes, we like to think we're going to get it in this life. But the truth is, we may not know what is after. You know, quite frankly, it's a horrible, it's a horribly interesting experience to have surgery and be put to sleep and then wake up and you don't remember anything, nothing. Could that be death? Yeah, maybe, or maybe not. You know, the bottom line is, we need to not worry about what we can't control. We need to worry about what we can control, and that is our life on this planet while we're still alive. We want to fully enjoy and appreciate every experience that we have, and we want to find a lot of peace in the journey that we call life. All right, we're taking a quick break, and we're coming back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. 
Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Dr. Connie Mariano is a groundbreaker. She was the White House physician to three presidents, toured the world on Air Force One, and has had countless amazing experiences. The one thing that life didn't prepare her for was becoming a widow. After losing her beloved husband, John, in a tragic accident, Dr. Connie joined the one million women who were widowed in the United States each year. While her journey as a widow has been one of intense grief and sorrow, it has also been one of extraordinary growth and rebirth. Now, Dr. Connie is sharing what she's learned, joined by her knowledgeable guests to help anyone struggling with this deeply personal and often lonely journey of their own. Tune into The Widow's Walk, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about a good death. And you know, our legacy is our most important factor, and that is the story of our life. And it is really important to understand that, yes, you're living your life as it is, but it's really important for you to understand you have also got to pass a legacy on. And that doesn't mean a a, a bucket full of lies. You know, a lot of people are great liars, but it is a journal possibly, or it is a video journal or a digital journal of what your life is about and some of the great stories and some of the things that you do want to pass on. You know, the stories of your life can go on generation after generation after generation. I know my grandfather, I know my life, my father, my my even my great-great-grandfather, they have left some incredible stories in my life that I value forever and I hold dear to my heart. You know, it, it, it's, it's what it's like to be alive in the past is very important. And then comparing it to the now, you how you want to think about your main contributions in life to your family, your community, your town, your state, your country. This is information family members are proud to know. They want to share. They want to hold on to. You know, if you're having a hard time, enlist a friend or family member to help you with that. But one of the best things you can do is engage your family in the legacy process. This can help ensure you don't ruffle any feathers or upset family members by giving away things they wanted. 
You know, what are some things that people would cherish? What holds special significance to them? Those are things that you want to think about before you die. This could include your finances, your lake house, your, you know, some of the things that you keep, some of your keepsakes, some of the things around your home, maybe legacies that have been passed down in your family. It's also not too late to come up with new family traditions to leave a legacy, whether it's taking a boat out on Labor Day or having a picnic or a new Christmas tradition to help everyone stay present. A special meal on the 4th of July traditions are a great way to leave a legacy. And lastly, you can also curate your family's history to leave a written or digital record behind. And it's a special, it's very special to remind your family where you came from. That's a huge thing. Also, making an impact on your community. You know, a lot of kids coaching, you know, can really help uh, uh, you being a part of a kid's life. You know, a lot of things that you can do in activities uh, with kids, like the Boys or Girl Club or coaching youth sports, your legacy is to live on in the hearts of kids you connect with. They're the younger ones. Also, if kids aren't your thing, you can volunteer at a garden or a library or museum or a foundation or a hospital. Spending time with your community can leave a legacy for your volunteer hours. That is a huge thing for you to do. And your death story. Your life story, your legacy is a critical component, and it's also something that teaches your children that they need to live a, a, a very thoughtful life, one of significance, one that is not all about them. You know, there's a whole lot of themes to a good death, and we need to really understand the dying process, that, the, 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 that you know, the religiosity, the emotional well-being. You know, all these things are things that we have to take into account. Also, dignity and family and quality of life, you know, and, and our relationship with a health care provider. That can mean a whole lot of things. If you have a health care provider that is not very caring, not very personal, probably not being the best thing to have at the end of life. You want to have people surrounding you that love you, care for you, have empathy and compassion and understanding, you know. The principles of a good death are very, very, well, they're extensive, but they're very simple. It's kind of like this. To know when death is coming and to understand what can be expected, that is a good death. To be able to retain control of what happens is a good death. To be afforded dignity and privacy is important to have control over your pain relief and other symptom control. Huge to have a choice and control over where death occurs at home, at, at hospice, or elsewhere. To have access to information and ex expertise of whatever kind is necessary. To have access to any spiritual or emotional support required. The last thing you want to do is some hospital pastor coming to pastor be the pastor at your death. What you want to have is somebody surrounding you, maybe that's been spiritually in your life, to be there. Also, if you have access to hospice care and know what that hospice is like, to control over who is present and who shares that end with you is a huge thing. Also, to be able to issue advanced directives, which ensure wishes are respected, that is humongous to have a good death, to have time to say goodbye 
control over other aspects of timing, to be able to leave when it's time to go and not to have life prolonged pointlessly. These are things that help us not have a terrible death, but have a good death. You know, we want in basic needs, freedom from pain. We want to be, here's death in, in a very simple way, freedom from pain, at peace with God, present with your family, mentally aware, treatment choices followed, finances in order, feel life was meaningful, have resolved all our conflicts, and die at home. These are the, this is the key things that people would love to have as a good death. Highly valued attention to spirituality in particular, the importance of coming to peace with God and praying and understanding that forgiveness in your life, especially forgiveness of yourself, comes from the idea that you understand your intentions and focus on those rather than your outcomes. Intentions rather than outcomes. That is where forgiveness is found. You know, achieving peace with God and pain control are nearly identical to importance for patients and bereaved family members. However, you know, some patients are, it's more important to resolve faith issues within themselves rather than take part in social or interpersonal expressions. So, you know, faith can be a big deal in the end, especially if you're worried about where you're going. And so, you know, having that connection with God is something you don't want to have thrust upon you at your last minute before death. It's something you want to arrive at. And what was, if you think about it from a Christian perspective, what do you think Jesus was? He was a spirit living a human life. We are humans with a spirit. He actually put the spirit forward, which means all that he cared about was pain, 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 other people's pain compassion for people's pain go pray to get rid of the pain that you have so that you can deal with other people's pain if all of us would live more like that any death that we have would be a good death you know we rather rarely give much thought to our own left a death until it's upon us and we're incapable of even imagining our own death even though we know and can imagine someone else's we're convinced of our own mortality, and, and as a result, we, we give little to no thought about how we would like our days and moments to be, and we need to do that. People often talk about a good death or a bad death for, you know, if you want a good death, it's one you need to plan. It's not one you need to put off. And, and, and what constitutes the ideas is different as far as what a good death and a bad death is. But what I'm trying to do is encompass those form the formula of what that might be. You know, there's a whole lot of things out there that, you know, calling a death good is a value judgment that might not necessarily belong to the patient. And that's very true. But you yourself have to get in line with what are my values and what do I want to be left behind in my life. That is an important ingredient. Also, a respectful death is a very important thing. The respect of your spirit, the respect of your life, the forgiveness of others is a huge ingredient of how we can move on in this life. And what's really sad is there's a lot of people who never are forgiven by people in life. And therefore, you have to learn how to forgive yourself because there's a lot of people who are too immature to understand the value of forgiveness to their life. And you're not going to change that. You know, the secret of a good or respectful death is communication. 
We have to be a part of our end of life to begin to have open discussions with others about what our wishes are. And we want to, you know, do we want to die at home? How do we want this to happen? There are many accounts of families not knowing what dying the dying person wanted, and then they have to make these decisions about care. You want to make those decisions. That is important. You know, also in today's society, there's a bunch of people that kill themselves. And what is suicide? Well, suicide is pain management. It is a pain that you have that you cannot get rid of. It's a spiritual pain. It is a psychological pain that no one understands and no one can solve but you. And so many people get so desperate. I don't know if you've ever had like a broken leg or something that was just so a broken back, something that was so painful, you could not even deal with it. It's just, you couldn't be yourself because of it. You couldn't interact with any other people. You couldn't give your children your love, your spouse. You couldn't love anybody. All you could do is focus on your pain. That's what happens to people when they're in a suicidal state. They are focused on their pain only. They're not focused on the consequences of their death. If you're dealing with people who are suicidal, what is really important is to understand their impact on others. Not don't do this for yourself. It's think about others. Think about the fact that if you kill yourself, you're teaching other people to do the same thing. There is a really good chance that if one person in a family commits suicide, that generationally is going to continue for hundreds of years in that family. You know, there's a whole lot of understanding that suicide has a whole bunch of different reasons and intent behind it. But the term suicide is applied to all cases of death resulting directly or indirectly from a positive or negative act of the victim. But the truth is, the vast majority of people who commit suicide in this life are people who have a suicidal life. Not that they're thinking about suicide. They're just fat or don't take care of themselves. They don't exercise. They eat like crap. They don't take care of their body. They don't care that they have diabetes. They don't care if they have heart disease. They don't care if they have cancer. They don't care. They just keep playing against the odds until they finally die. They don't know when they're going to die. That's the magic of it. They don't know when they're going to die. I guess I'll just keep drinking alcohol until I croak off or I'll take this drug until it finally kills me, but it's going to kill me, but I don't know when. That's a suicidal life. And if you think you're a great living example for the people who love you, you suck. It's unfortunate. But a lot of people in this life don't take care of themselves, live a suicidal life, and have taught a lot of people in their life how to live a suicidal life. Very sad. But people do that, and they never talk about the fact that they have a suicidal life. They smoke. They drink. They do all kinds of crazy to kill themselves. Yes, they are trying to kill themselves. And the fact is, they know they're trying to kill themselves, but they won't face it. And therefore, they're going to die, but they're just going to die whenever. And it's not me killing me. It's me dying because of a heart attack or this, that. But the truth is, they killed themselves. You know, there's also this egotistical suicide, you know, stemming from the absence of, of social integration. And we did a show on this last week, but the sense of belonging, when people do not belong, when people feel that they do not belong, when no one makes the great effort to reach out to somebody who may be a little different, a little awkward, a little whatever, you know, the fact is everybody has strengths. Take advantage of that. 
learn from each other. We are not brilliant, so brilliant that we know everything. We can learn things from anybody in this life. And so the fact is that suicidal people have no social integration often. And it's it's committed by people who are social outcasts. They see themselves as being alone or an outsider. They are unable to find their own place in society. They have problems adjusting to groups. They receive little and no social care. And so suicide is seen as a solution for them to free themselves of their loneliness and excessive individuation. You know, there's also altruistic suicide, and it occurs when social groups' involvement is too high. So individuals are so well integrated into a group that they're willing to sacrifice their own life in order to fulfill some obligation for the broader group. So individuals kill themselves for the collective benefit of the group or for the cause that the group believes in. You know, I, I, I just know, I remember a story this last week of some mayor that was like a transgender person dressed as a, tra you know, as a female mayor of a small town. And the people ridiculed him when, when there was social media that discovered that. They humiliated him and basically he ended up killing himself. And, you know... They played a part in that, and they need to own that crap. You know, they played a part in that. There's also um, people that will kill themselves through kind of like kamikaze pilots or, or, or people that flew into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon or Pennsylvania, you know, a, a field in Pennsylvania. You know, during the, the World War II, the, the Japanese kamikaze pilots were willing to lay down their own lives for their countries in the hope that they will win the war. And so they believed that their nation's cause and they're willing to sacrifice their lives. And so suicide bombers around the world were willing to give up their lives in order to make a political or religious statement because their life as it was is of so little significance. You know, there's a lot of studies, studies by the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and they found that historically suicides for people aged 20 Five to 64 rows during downturns in our economy. And there's a significant increase in suicide rates in the USA from 1928 to 32. Guess when those years are? The Great Depression. Very important for all of us to understand that, that depression creates depression and depression can really do a number on people who are suicidal because suddenly their options are dim and small and smaller. You know, there's also uh, uh, when things go bad, like earthquakes and fires and any kind of natural cause type of death, or when a person's uh, body has been uh, to where they can't use it, there's a lot of people who will die after tragic events where their life, it's been a life-altering experience. And it's unfortunate, but people do that. Uh, there's also fatalistic suicide, and it occurs when peoples are kept under tight regulation. And these peoples are placed under extreme rules or high expectations, and they're set upon them, which removes a person's sense of self and individuality. That means they have to be perfect. And yes, that is a societal need. That is a societal thing that propels them to do that. And it's unfortunate. But when societies are pushing people to be perfect, like the woke movement, where you have to be absolutely 
totally right in one person's eyes or in another person's eyes but what's fair to one person is not fair to another so the woke movement is a continuous moving target of who to destroy next they love to destroy people because it gives people power what do children want children want power that is their greatest thing that they starve for. Negative attention is better than no attention at all. Do you think that magically goes away? No. People go into their adult life as a child with negative attention is better than no attention. You know, it's unfortunate, but our society is, is labeling people left and right. And the more that we label each other, the more that we have to understand that we are propensing suicide, we're promoting it. We're putting it out there because people are set to have expectations that they can never meet, never. And so society in itself is such a hypocrite. We have a tendency to sit around and think that we are the idea. We'd love to pick other people apart when the truth is, is that we're 10 times as bad as all the other people that we pick on. And so it's important for us to understand also that children see death-related experiences, and these are common in childhood, by the way, death-related experiences. Many adults assume that uh, otherwise. You know, understanding death is an important issue for kids. They begin at an early age to try to understand it. And a lot of studies have been conducted to determine what children of various ages understand about death. This is a huge problem with kids. They need to understand what death is and that all of us do die. You know, there's a, a study of, of children's understanding of death. It, it has a long history, and it's been conducted by Schilder and Weschler in 1934. Um, but that has been an important factor as far as studying how children perceive it. And we're going to talk a whole lot about how children see death after we take a quick break. So come back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Stuck in a state of being that holds us back from creating the life we truly desire. Regardless of your own blocks or limitations, imagine an easier way to get unstuck and move forward with your life. On this show, Jason Hopkins shares his practical next right step approach that will move you toward the life you really want. You too can be steps from getting the abundance, love, support, and fulfillment your heart desires. Get unstuck. Move forward with your life with Jason Hopkins. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, 
please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. We're, we're talking about a good death. You know, there's there's a whole lot of components about death. And we're going to talk about children and death here in a moment. You know, their views of death are a lot different than the mature understanding of death. Children think they're invincible, quite frankly. But universality refers to the understanding that all living things must eventually die. That is something that children need to be taught. They need to understand that your life is not permanent. It is one that is very transient, and it goes very quickly, and you want to take as much advantage of it as you can. That doesn't mean you want to destroy the earth or take advantage of other people, but you want to take advantage of the fact that you're alive and there's a lot of great things on this planet to experience. There's also the irreversibility of death. That, you know, uh, this this irre- irreversibility refers to the understanding that once the physical body dies, it can't be made alive again, you know? And if you offer this definition, the question of whether there is some sort of non-personal, non-corporal continuation after death of the body, you know, like reincarnation or resurrection is left open. But we're not living in that reality. We have to understand that death is irreversible. And the physical body dies. And any uh, any question of life functions continue after death is spiritual. And that we have to begin to understand that now we're talking about our soul, not just our body. Here in this narcissistic world that we all live in as human beings, where we're basically destroying our ability to live anymore. But as we are as human beings on this planet, as human beings, we have to understand that death is inevitable for our body, but what we also have to cultivate in this life is our spirit. We have to live a life of meaning, and that is your spirit, and that is what the most important part of this life's cultivation is, is the evolution, the maturity of your spirit through this life, through knowledge that we gain at a young age, and the wisdom of the applied learning of that knowledge as we get older. That's why integrity is the key. If you want to live a a good life all the way to the end, then have integrity. If you don't have integrity, if you don't value the truth, if you're a dishonest person, there's a good chance you're going to die alone. A lot of people do, and it's unfortunate that a lot of people will spend the end of their life in a nursing home with nobody showing up. And that's because they did not manage their integrity. Not all of them, certainly not all of them, but there's a good amount of people sitting around, ending their life, just waiting to die with no one showing up because in their life, they did not show value to other people. A good amount of people that do that. There's also non-functionality in death. And that's the understanding that once living thing dies, all the typical life-defining capabilities of the living physical body die too, like walking and eating and hearing and seeing and thinking and learning. It's done. It's all done. And, and here again, specifying the person's physical body 
distinguishes the aspect of the concept of death from the issue whether some non-corporal aspect of a person, such as a spirit, is capable of any life functions, like loving and helping after death. There's also causality. And, and unlike other three components that were talked about earlier, there is no consensus as to the definition of causality. You know, collectively, the various approaches that, that causality involves are abstract and realistic understanding that the external and the internal events that might possibly cause a person's death refers to the fact that causes specified are not restricted to events or individuals. Causes may take place over a long period of time. Yes, there may be blunt, very quick deaths where causes are obvious, but there also may be deaths that are caused over time, like a person's cholesterol. If they eat like crap, then they're going to probably die of a heart attack because they're going to clog their arteries till they finally die. But that's going to start early, and then it keeps chugging until it finally takes them down. You know, it's important to note that, that these uh, key components are very important to understanding the fact that we do die. Now, children, you know, their early views are very important. You know, before they understand universality, that all of us will die, younger children are more likely than older children to indicate that death is not universal and that exceptions have included the child or the children in general, uh, immediate family teachers, even invest, you know, people that are invested in their life, they think they're going to live forever. They think they're going to be around forever. They take for great advantage of that idea. And it's unfortunate because if they do understand death, as children come to understand death in their adult life, what they come to understand is that they wish they would have done a whole lot of things better. But immaturity does that. And children, it's nice that they have the freedom to not worry about death. But, you know, the fact is, is that it happens. When children, uh, experience a traumatic death in of, of someone that they're close to in their young life that has a profound effect on their childhood and it's unfortunate but when a child is faced with death for the first time what generally will happen is that person the, the significance of that person's death is very important if they played a big role in their life there is a good chance that the child will become more parentified more mature. They will step more into adult decision-making because they understand that life is consequential. Decisions are consequential. And so when they come across that, children have a tendency to begin to make adult decisions. They lose part of their childish naivete and they move into a different phase of their childhood that calls for more responsibility. Also, in that study I cited uh, by Schindler and, and Weschler uh, back in 34, they found that children uh, attributed the possibility of death to all other people before they extend it to themselves. Yeah, you know, it, it also suggests that, they, that most children understand their own personal mortality before they understand that all people die. Some do understand that, but not all people really, not all kids come to grips with that. It's kind of a delusional thing to think that you are going to die as a child at any point. Also, younger children are more likely than older children to view death as temporary and irreversible. So some children see death as sleep. 
from which you wake up or like a trip and then you return and they think death can be reversed and they believe that it can happen spontaneously after eating or drinking you know through wishful thinking by praying they they are magical thinkers and they love to think in that way they want to think in that way and do we want to discourage them no because that's part of childhood but do we want them to face the reality that death is there yes because we don't want their life to be wrecked if somebody close to them does die also younger children are more likely than older to think that the dead continue to be able to perform various functions you know like understanding in a, you know it, dif it differs but you know they assume they think about functions that are external and readily observable you know and they think about the things that they did like uh, drawing or spending time with them or or going on a tractor or doing whatever they still in their mind carry those dreams forward they carry those memories forward in their mind and that's a very important for, thing for us to encourage also it's strange but a lot of younger children actually can and do communicate that they have communicated with the dead. And that's a very important factor to understand that may have something to do with their naivete. But, uh, you know, the, the fact is, is that helping a child understand death in a mild understanding way is a very good thing to do in the early stages rather than the later stages. You know, it's, a, it's a useful for kids to understand that this life is going to end and that, yes, you want to have legacies and memories and relationships and you want to leave those great things behind in your life starting now. You know, that also with children, they think medical reversibility is highly possible. And a lot of people carry that into uh, adult life. Yes, prayer can sometimes save people's lives. Yes, medical reversibility is true. But to think that that's going to be the vast majority of people's experiences when they're dying or when they're close to death, to have that expectation that that's going to happen, that there's going to be a miraculous healing, the expectation is horrible. Don't do that. What you want to have is a preference. I prefer my prayers are answered. I prefer the medication worked, but it doesn't always work. You know, it's just important for us to come to understand that death is a welcome thing in our life we don't want our life to be lived for the last moment of our life we want our life to be filled with memories and then when we die those memories are passed on to others that's called legacy that is the most important part and then if people in your life die do things in your life that you they wish you would have done for yourself that you never will these are important things to remember. I want to thank everybody for listening. I love hearing from you. You can do that at voiceamerica.com, the empowerment and health and wellness channels, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Now remember, if you want to be remembered, leave a lot of debt. Also, spending time with an insurance salesman is worse than death. Also, most people die before they're dead. Also, some people drive peacefully behind the wheel and, and uh, fall asleep. Not like the passengers who are riding when they do fall asleep. Also, God takes back all the people he gave you. Don't forget that. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show for this week. 
Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 